0: Good morning, Bethel Church. Morning. My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel. We are in week two of The Big Picture, seeing the Bible story from Eden to eternity. This month, Pastors Craig, Jonas, and I will take us on a 30,000 foot flyover of the entire Bible from cover to cover. Here's the story so far In the beginning, God made us. And gave us a choice. Life with God forever. Or knowledge of good and evil. We chose knowledge. And evil entered the world. But God didn't give up on us. God made covenants with Adam, Abraham, and Moses. Promising to give them land and leadership. By the end of Deuteronomy, Israel is standing on the bank of the Jordan River. 60 feet. From the promised land. In this morning's message from Exodus to exile, we'll journey through the books of Joshua through Chronicles. They tell the story of three kingdoms, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of self, and the kingdom of idols. They challenge us with the same question Israel faced 4,000 years ago. Who wears the crown in our lives? Before we begin our journey, let's ask the King of Kings to guide us. Let's pray. Father God, you are the only true king. You are the only one worthy of wearing the crown in our lives. Lord, we confess before you that we have wanted to be our own rulers, that we have looked to others to fill the role that only you can fill in our lives, that we have dabbled in the kingdom of self and the kingdom of idols for far too long. Lord, this morning, renew us, revive us, and return us home to the kingdom of God. We pray this in your powerful name, Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Her small hands dig into the river bank, looking for smooth stones to skip along the water's surface. She's 10 years old, the oldest of five children, one of thousands of refugee families gathered at the water's edge. She finds her skipping stone and flings it with all her might. One, two, three, four, five skips. She imagines herself skipping across the river to reach the other side. That's all the adults ever talk about reaching the other side growing up in the desert she's learned many survival skills swimming is not one of them after decades of desert homelessness her people are 60 feet from finding home sadly their leader Moses has died and their dream so close. Now seems so distant. That's where our story starts, on the wrong side of the Jordan River, 60 feet from the promised land. Joshua 1.1. After the death of Moses, the Lord said to Joshua, get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give the Israelites. Joshua's Hebrew name is Yeshua. Say Yeshua. It means he saves. God calls Joshua to save God's people from desert homelessness by bringing them into the promised land. Two obstacles stand in his way. First, the Jordan River. There's no bridge, and swimming all their children and livestock and possessions across is unrealistic. Second, the Jericho army. They control the land from behind heavily fortified walls, and they won't give up without a fight. Still, God says in Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Joshua sends spies across the river into Jericho, the heavily fortified city. They hide out with a prostitute named Rahab who already knows them by reputation. She says to nine, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water from the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt. The Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Israel took 40 years to travel from Egypt to Jericho, but news about them traveled faster. Rahab becomes the first recorded Gentile, meaning non-Jewish, convert to the God of Israel. She lowers the spies down by a rope through her window, and they report everything. To Joshua. From here, God does all the work. Remember the two obstacles? The Jordan River and the Jericho walls. First, the Lord says to Joshua, tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, go and stand in the river. As soon as the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, Its waters flowing downstream will be cut off. God damns the Jericho River. Second, the Lord says to Joshua, march around the city for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times. When you hear them sound the loud blast on the trumpets. Have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the walls of the city will collapse. God destroys the Jericho walls. How does Israel win the battle? They worship. Israel's armies handle the cleanup. 624, they burn the whole city and everything in it. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute because she hid the spies and she lives among the Israelites to this day. In fact, Rahab marries one of the Israelites' spies and she has a son, Boaz. Remember that name. In the promised land, Joshua doesn't appoint himself as king. He knows Israel already has a king, God. Instead, he ends his book by calling out Israelites who don't see God as king, who still worship Egyptian gods or worship the pagan gods of their neighbors. Joshua 24, 15, "'Choose whom you will serve, "'whether the gods of your ancestors "'or the gods in whose lands you are living. "'But as for me and my household, "'we will serve the Lord.'" Joshua chose the kingdom of God. The word kingdom in the Bible literally means reign. It's not about geography. It's about sovereignty. If you obey God as your king, you are in the kingdom of God. That's Joshua. That's Rahab. And that can be you and me. After Joshua dies, however... Israel decides that they'd rather serve themselves than God. That takes us to the kingdom of self. Judges 2. After Joshua died, the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies. But whenever the judge died, they returned to ways more corrupt than those of their fathers. This is the judge's cycle. Sin, slavery, repentance, rescue. Whenever Israel gets comfortable, they forget God and fall into sin and slavery. But whenever Israel repents, God raises up a judge to rescue them. Sin, slavery, Repentance, rescue. Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so God raised up Othniel. When Othniel died, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so God raised up Ehud. When Ehud died, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so God raised up Shamgar. When Shamgar died, evil. <laughs> Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and so God raised up Deborah. Let's zoom in here, Judges 4, 4. Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Canaan. Deborah, a prophetess, was judging Israel at that time. She summoned Barak and said, the Lord commands you, go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, for the Lord will sell Sisera, that's Canaan's commander, into the hand of a woman. Two important things about Deborah. First, Deborah was a woman in a culture that treated women more like property than people. She was a wife and a mother, yet, God called her to be Israel's political, military, and spiritual leader. Second, Deborah was a prophetess. Prophecy doesn't necessarily mean telling the future. Prophecy means hearing God's voice for someone else. Sometimes it's about the future. Usually it's about the present. What does Deborah prophesy? Israel should ambush their enemies at Mount Tabor. That's for the present. Then the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. That's for the future. Because Deborah heard from God, Israel wins the battle. But Sisera escapes. Who would be the woman to defeat him? Any guesses? Not Deborah, actually. Sisera fled on foot to the tent of Jael. She said to him, come right in, and covered him with a blanket. Jael picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he slept. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Ouch. Deborah defeats the army, and Jael kills their commander. Israel is safe, Judges 5 says, because God raised up a mother in Israel. Some say the Bible is against women. The ancient world certainly was, But the God of the Bible repeatedly elevates women in a way that no other ancient writer does. In the Old Testament, women are prophetesses, have angels appear to them, take Nazarite vows, are ministers in the tent of meeting, and are worship leaders in the temple. In the New Testament, Jesus calls women to be His disciples, something unheard of in His day. From the first pages, we meet Mary, the mother of God, Anna, a prophetess; Mary and Martha, Jesus' close friends. On Easter, women are the first witnesses and proclaimers of the resurrection. Then there's Lydia, the first European convert, who hosted the Philippian church in her home. Priscilla, a traveling speaker, who trained missionaries alongside her husband. Phoebe, a deacon in the church of Chenchria. Junia whom Paul calls outstanding among the apostles. And the list goes on. Remember Genesis 1, 27. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Deborah worships for the entire next chapter, and Israel has peace for 40 years. The judges after her, however, decline in quality. Gideon doubts God. Jair names everything after himself. Jephthah kills his own daughter. Samson has multiple affairs. Each is worse than the last. Sure, they're winning battles, but they're losing the spiritual war. By the end of the book of Judges, it's become abundantly clear. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. Israel becomes the kingdom of self. They do what they want, and no one, not even God, tells them what to do. Little kids know what they want but they don't know what they need. They want to eat an entire plate of cookies, but they need to stop at three. They want to chase their ball into the street, but they need to wait for an adult. In the kingdom of self, we get to be our own kings and queens. But no one's looking out for us. That's the problem with the kingdom of self. We know what we want, but only God knows what we need. While the book of Judges ends with selfish Israelites, the next book, Ruth, opens with a selfless Gentile. Ruth is a poor Gentile widow who sacrifices everything to support her Jewish mother-in-law. God rewards her with a husband, Boaz. Yes, Rahab's Boaz. Together they have a son named Obed, who has a son named Jesse, who has a son named David. What's so important about Ruth? Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1 gives us a clue. Matthew mentions mostly fathers, but in verse 5, he mentions two mothers. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Rahab and Ruth were Gentile women who converted to Israel's faith. God isn't just the God of Israel. He's the God of everyone. And he came to save everyone. Galatians 3:28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Israel was supposed to influence the Gentile nations to worship God as king. Instead, the Gentile nations influenced Israel to worship their idols and want a human king. That takes us to the books of Samuel through Chronicles. The kingdom of idols. During the books of Samuel through Chronicles, Israel turns to idols for protection. An idol is anyone or anything we put first before God. God is a jealous God. He doesn't share first place with idols. Unsurprisingly, the idols fail to protect Israel. Our story picks up in 1 Samuel 8. Israel is tired of judges. They want a human king. So they cry out in 1 Samuel 8:6: Give us a king to lead us. This displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, Listen to the people, for it is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day. God doesn't just give Israel a human king, He gives them exactly what they want. First Samuel nine two. His name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Saul becomes an overnight celebrity and does all the things human kings do in his day. He amasses wealth and defeats enemies. And like the judges before him, he knows Israel's secret to success, God. God. But there's one key difference. Israel's judges served God. Saul thinks God serves him. Watch what happens when God tries to tell Saul what to do. 1 Samuel 15.1 Samuel said to Saul, The Lord Almighty says, I will punish the Amalekites. Go and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, cattle and sheep. The instructions are clear. Destroy everything. The Amalekites' time to repent is up. God is a God of love, but he's also a God of judgment. Make sure you're on the right side when your time is up. Verse seven, Saul defeated the Amalekites, but Saul spared their king and the best of their sheep and oxen. Samuel said to Saul, what is this bleeding of sheep and lowing of oxen that I hear? Saul said, they brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord. Listen to Saul's logic. I disobeyed God so I could bribe him. You see the problem? So did Samuel. He replies, verse 18. The Lord said, destroy the Amalekites completely. Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I brought the king of Amalek and I have destroyed the Amalekites. Saul basically says, I did kill all the Amalekites. Just ask their king. Sometimes we treat God like he's a spiritual vending machine. If I just pray enough or read my Bible enough, he'll answer my prayers in the way that I want. The problem is God doesn't exist to serve us. We exist to serve him. Instead of obeying God, Saul tries to bribe him. How does that work out? 1 Samuel 16:7 The Lord said, "Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him." People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Without God's help, Saul collapses in battle. 1 Samuel 31:2 Then the Philistines killed Saul's sons and hit him with arrows. Saul took his sword and fell on it. So Saul, his three sons, and all his men died that day together. Israel needed a new king. Fortunately, God already had someone in mind. Rewind to 1 Samuel 16. Saul is still king. Samuel visits a little town called Bethlehem to conspire with Ruth's grandson, Jesse. He asks Jesse to bring out his sons. Jesse brings out the oldest, but God says, no. Then the next, no. Then the next, no. Seven sons, seven no's. In 1 Samuel sixteen eleven, Samuel asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest. Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. This is the one. It's like you start an entry-level job and they say, you'll be the next CEO. David, the youngest son, was about to be king. David is barely old enough to bring sandwiches to the soldiers. Yet God calls him to fight the giant Goliath. David threatens the giant in 1 Samuel 17, 45. You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. The Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will cut off your head. And yes, after knocking him out with a sling and stone, David cuts off the giant's head and carries it back to Jerusalem, probably by the hair. David becomes a national hero, gets a palace job, gets assaulted by his boss, and becomes a homeless fugitive. But when Saul dies, this shepherd boy becomes Israel's third king. What happens when you get everything you could ever want? You want more. 2 Samuel 11, one. One evening, David walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to find out about her. Then David sent messengers to get her, and he slept with her. David has six wives at this point, and he's unfaithful to all of them. When the woman Bathsheba finds out she's pregnant, David has her husband killed to cover it up. He breaks every commandment in a single chapter. Yet there's one important difference between David and Saul. When the prophet Nathan confronts David in 2 Samuel 12, David makes no excuses. 2 Samuel 12, 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David confesses his sin before God to Nathan. David's sins still have real consequences. The child they conceive dies. His family falls apart. One son kills another son, tries to overthrow the kingdom and ends up dead. He's now buried three sons. How can someone who sinned so much be called the man after God's heart? Aren't David's sins worse than Saul's? Maybe they are. But David does something Saul never did. He repents. David prays in Psalm 51.4, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Just as David spoke to God, God spoke to David. In 2 Samuel 7, 15, God said, Your love, my love, will never be taken away from you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Your throne will be established forever. God promised that David's kingdom would endure forever because from David's line would come the true king forever. 1,000 years later, Jesus was born from David's line. He died on the cross with a sign above his head, King of the Jews. He rose again and ascended to heaven where he reigns from his throne forever. He is the human king we always wanted and the heavenly king we always needed. David gets a ton wrong, but he gets this one thing right. He knows who the real king is. Psalm 24, verse 9 Lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, the king of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. David knows only God deserves the crown. Sadly, he doesn't hand the crown up to God. He hands it down to his son Solomon, who hands it down to his son Rehoboam, and so on. Everyone who wears the crown gets corrupted by it. Solomon marries 700 wives and worships their idols. Rehoboam starts a civil war that splits Israel in two. Israel's divided kings worship idols, so God lets the idols defend them. It doesn't go well. Babylon destroys Jerusalem and drags Israel off into exile as slaves. There's a problem with the kingdom of idols. Idols will always let you down. You can't expect someone or something else to take the place of God. Your significant other might be a great partner but they're a terrible God. Your favorite celebrity might be a great person, but they're a terrible God. Your favorite hobby might be a great pastime, but it's a terrible God. When God was Israel's king, they had land and leadership. When Israel chose their own king, they lost both. Today's journey started on the banks of the promised land. But it ends on the banks of Babylon. Exodus to exile. It's the judges cycle all over again. When we're in slavery, we repent. When we're rescued, we return to our sin. And so the cycle goes. You see, each of us are born with a crown. And we place it on the head of whomever we serve. In 1974, Burger King came out with a new slogan. Have it your way. Hold the pickles, hold the lettuce. Special orders won't upset us. All we ask is that you let us. Have it your way. Many of us approach God like we're ordering at Burger King. I'll order safe travels and a successful day. Hold the morning devotions. Hold the helping those in need. The problem is, God isn't Burger King. He's the king. C.S. Lewis put it this way. There are two kinds of people. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God says, all right then, have it your way. Which kind of person are you, if you're honest? The one who says to God, your will be done. Or the one to whom God says, fine, have it your way. Are you living for God? Or is someone or something else first? In your life? If someone measured how you spend your time and money, who or what would they say is first in your life? From Joshua through Chronicles, Israel wrestled with the question who wears the crown? They wanted a human king, but they needed a heavenly one. God in His wisdom. Gave us both. His name is Jesus. From the Hebrew, Yeshua. Meaning he saves. And wow, did he live up to that name. Instead of wearing a crown of gold, he wore a crown of thorns. Instead of seizing an earthly throne, he hung on a Roman cross. He died for our sins with a sign above his head, King of the Jews. But that's only half of the story. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. From where he sits on heaven's throne still today, Jesus is the only rightful king. And he can be your king today. Romans ten nine. if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never said Jesus is Lord. You've never said Jesus is Lord. You've lived your whole life in the kingdom of self. It's time to come home to the kingdom of God. Today is the day of salvation. Just tell him right now, Lord Jesus, I'm yours. Save me. Maybe you've been a Christian for some time, but you've been putting someone or something else ahead of God in your life. You've strayed into the kingdom of idols, and it's time to return home to the kingdom of God. Today is the day of repentance. Just tell him, Lord Jesus, I'm yours. Save me. The kingdom of God is bigger than just you or me. If you've prayed a prayer of salvation, ask another Christian to help you grow. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Encourage one another and build each other up. If you've prayed a prayer of repentance, ask another Christian to hold you accountable. James 5, 16. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. If you've prayed a prayer of repentance, if you've prayed a prayer of salvation, tell someone. Put God first. And everything else will fall into place. Let me leave you with one thing Who wears the crown in your life? Confess your idols to someone this week and ask them to help you put God first. Let's pray. Father God, you are the King of Kings. And Lord, we humbly ask that you will be king over our lives. Help us to surrender the crown to the only one fit to wear it, you. Help us to put you first in our lives. Lord, we repent of the ways that we have not put you first. We repent of our selfishness, of our pride, of our idolatry, putting others on pedestals when only you can fill that place in our lives. Lord, we pray for those listening today who need salvation. And we ask, Lord, that you today will become their king. We lift up those today in need of repentance that you can bring them to that place of humility and confession and be their king. And Lord, we come before you humbly asking that you would wear the crown in our lives. We pray this in the powerful name of you, Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen.